By the time I was in college, I had a pretty decent understanding of how business worked. That's because when I was a freshman in high school, my dad was unfairly fired from a job. He was one of two assistant managers in a credit union. The other assistant manager was a lady who had been with the credit union from its very beginning. But when my dad came in, apparently he was really good at bringing in a lot of commercial accounts. And as my dad told me later, I, he said, I guess she felt threatened in her position as number two. And so what she did is she told a lie about my dad. She told a lie that he had broken some kind of banking law. And the manager believed her, the board of directors believed her, and they fired him. It makes sense, right? In business, you got to make sure that your position in the company is secure. I remember a time when my dad was a junior vice president with Bank One, and uh, he was trying to get promoted to senior vice president. And he, uh, he was generating three times the amount of loan volume and profit that any of the other assistant vice presidents were doing in his region of the country, in his region of the Midwest. And they brought him in, and they sat him down, and this is what they told my father. Hey, Mike, we totally like you. I mean, you're doing a great job for Bank One. Make no mistake, buddy. But here's the deal. It's company policy that you can't be a senior vice president or above unless you have a college degree. And you don't have a college degree. I'm sorry. My hands are tied. It worked out great for the bank because they got three times the profit for half the salary. I mean, business is business, right? See, there's a saying about business, and it's the one I just gave you. Have you ever heard the saying? Business is business. We mean a lot of things by that phrase. Business is business. It plays out with a couple of men who are watching a ball game, and they go into the kitchen, and the guy says to his friend, you know, the wifey's been all over me about, you know, I need to do a kitchen redo, and his friend just happens to be a contractor. They get to talking, and his friend's like, you know, I could totally do this. And they take some measurements, they write some things out, and the friend says, done. I'll get started on it. It'll be my next project. No, no worries. We'll do this. We'll knock this out together. Well, the guy, four days later, starts to think about, well, this is a lot of money. This is a kitchen redo. This is a project. So he calls three home improvement companies and has them come out and does bids. And one of the companies is able to come in at 25% below his friend. So what does he do? He calls his friend and says, hey, look, I've made a decision. I got to thinking about this, and this is, this is a chunk of money. I mean, this is a big deal. This is a home kitchen redo. You understand. It's nothing personal. It's business. Oh, you've had these conversations with people. It plays out when a company calls in a 57-year-old man who has worked at the company for 20 years and looks him dead in the eye and says, Carl, we're going to have to let you go. I'm sorry. I know you're seven years from retirement, but we just can't afford you anymore. We can't afford to keep you on the payroll. And Susan, in your department, she can do your job for a third of the cost. We can't keep any mental management around anymore. Listen, listen. It, this has nothing to do with you. We just need to remain competitive. Listen, it's not personal, it's business. It plays out in the factory that has operated in the same town for 20 years and employs 30% of the town's residents and decides to up and pull out and move production overseas. They got to keep labor costs down. They have investors that they need to keep, consider. It's business. 
for the past 20 years in America, pastors and church leaders have clamored after running church like a business. We have gone to the conferences. We have read the books. We talk about vision. We talk about alignment. We talk about assimilation and systems. And some of us brag about how we run our churches every bit as well as Disney runs its theme parks. And it's a badge of honor that we carry. And it's worked. If you had told a group of pastors in 1980 that you could grow churches in America to 15, 20, 25,000 people in 1980, they would have laughed at you. They would have said, first of all, that's not even possible. And secondly, why would you even try? But it's worked, hasn't it? We have churches that have tremendous reach in satellite campuses. We have buildings and butts and seats and dollars, the things that we measure in church land, the three things that seem to matter the most. But I want to say to you this morning that the church is not a business. The church is not a business, and it shouldn't be run that way exclusively or primarily. See, here's how business church works. I can tell you stories. Church business works this way. The, uh, let's say you've got youth pastor Julie, and you, the executive pastor brings past youth pastor Julie into his office, and there's the director of human resources there. And he looks at Julie and he says, Julie, church attendance for First Church has gone up 21% over the last year, but attendance at youth events and youth nights has been flat. Listen, we talked about this. We've talked about this several times. This was part of your performance plan a year ago. You know this. Don't get me wrong. You're an excellent wife. You're a phenomenal mom. We don't question your call. We don't question your love for Jesus or your love for the kids. But listen, this is important. We can't afford to have someone in here who can't get results. So here's how this is going to play out. You're going to stand up next Sunday and you're going to tell the people in the church that God's calling you on and we'll give you six months severance to stay positive. We think that's pretty generous. And we'll just part ways. Do you know where Julie is five years later? Out of the ministry. Because in her mind, she just got whammied by her family. In business church, a pastor's primary focus is to cast vision, engage, uh, deliver engaging messages, and raise money. Many of them don't do weddings and funerals, and some of them don't even do baptisms. And forget about getting 30 minutes of time with your pastor. It's not going to happen. And it makes sense. If you were a cast member at Disney World, you couldn't call Disney corporate and expect to get 30 minutes time with the CEO of Disney. Right? Who would expect that? In business church, we pastors are coached and taught to cultivate relationships with high-capacity donors. You can take seminars. I've taken them. And you're told these people are different. These people need to be treated differently than other people in your congregation. Museums know this. Nonprofits know this. Senators know this. Congressmen know this. And if you think I exaggerate, I've had people sit across from me. I had one person sit across from me, look me in the eye and say, Max, you guys need people like me. If you're going to build the buildings you want, if you're going to do the stuff that you want, you need people like me in your church. And you need to understand you can't treat me the way you treat everyone else. I had a friend 
three years ago who was in a church out west, and he was really frustrated and really frustrated and really frustrated, and and you know he couldn't that he couldn't meet with his pastor. And I explained things to him, and I said, look, as church gets bigger, this is how it works. If the pastor gave you time and gave everyone time who wanted to see him or wanted to see her, the amazing messages that took place wouldn't be taking place anymore. The, the, all the stuff that you love about church wouldn't happen anymore. But, you know, it's like he didn't understand it. He didn't get it. I want to say to you that business church is not biblical. It's not modeled anywhere in the Old and New Testament. And with all due respect to the people that advocate it, it's wrong. It's bad for the pastors who practice it. It's bad for church members who go along with it. And it has created an overload of pastors who, because of the pressure of having to perform at such a high level, cross lines sexually, they cross lines financially, they become discouraged, and they quit. It has produced an army of churchgoers in America who utterly and are completely dissatisfied with church. Business church is bad for everyone. It is. It's bad for everyone, and it doesn't have to be that way. I'm going to lay forth a value today, and I know you hear it in my voice already. This is a value that I hope you stakeholders and you partners of this church will die for. I hope this is a value that if somebody comes in and they say, no, there's a better way, you need to do it this way, you look them square in the eye and you say, keep moving. We know who we are. We may be crazy, but we're not kidding. Keep moving. This is who we are. Church is family, not a business. Period. Whether you like it or not, you have a biological family or an adoptive family, and you didn't choose to be in either one. You didn't. It happened. You were born into it or you were adopted into it. And in that family, you have people like Uncle Jack. This is Uncle Jack. Every Christmas, every holiday, every family gathering. Hey, Jack, it's time to open gifts. Hey, Jack, Grandpa's praying. Wake up, okay? In your family, there's people like Cousin Greg. Cousin Greg who thinks he's going to be the next Pierce Morgan. And he's always got a microphone. How was your summer break? And you're like, Greg, I'm going to shove that... <laughs> Don't be talking to your cousin that way. In your family is, is Aunt Sammy, who no matter what you tell her, her response is, ah! <laughs> and you're like, calm down, Sammy. It's okay. Some of the people in your family are weird. Some of them are wonderful. Some of them literally embody love. Some of them are so dysfunctional that you want to shoot them. None of them are perfect. And every single one of them is irreplaceable. And at some point, you and I have to say to ourselves, I don't want to be a number. I want to be irreplaceable. Now, here's what I'm not preaching about today. I am not anti-big. This isn't big and small. And I totally get that when you're a bigger church, you do have to roll differently than when you're a smaller church. Isn't it true? If, if small were just the way to roll then all small churches would be awesome, wouldn't they? You and I know a ton of small churches that do not remind you of Jesus, that have people who are petty, who hold grudges, who politic, and who do all the wrong things, and you step back and you go, well, that's why you're small. You know, if you could just love people, <laughs> right? And not all big churches are evil either, right? Size, has, size is size. 
There are some big churches that the fruit of the Spirit characterizes their congregational life. And God's doing amazing things. So hear me. This isn't about big or small. This is about running church primarily or exclusively as a business. And to that, I say, no thank you. No thank you. There's a lot of metaphors for church in the Bible. The beloved bride of Christ. Jesus is going to come back for his bride. I love it when people say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Right? And it's understand that when you say that, you're kind of basically saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you're awesome, but could you, like, get a divorce? <laughs> Jesus says he's coming back for not just his bride, but his beloved bride. His beloved bride. Uh, a flock is another metaphor used for a church. There's a moment where Jesus is entering Jerusalem and everybody's throwing down palm branches and all this stuff. And it's his moment to shine in the sun. And everybody's kind of like, Woo, Jesus, Jesus. And what does he do? He starts weeping. He starts weeping. Bible says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And in that moment, he realized, you'll just go anywhere or do anything. You don't have anyone shepherding you. Another metaphor for the church is the household of faith. The household of faith. And the Greek word for that is oikos. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So if you brought a Bible, open it to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Oikos. See if I can find it in my Bible. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to lots of different churches. It's considered to be a circular letter. It's circled around. And in chapter 2, it's a big chapter. And Paul is saying a lot of things. He's talking about the salvation of individuals by grace. That's the passage that started off our church service this morning. There isn't anything you bring to the table. It's, it's what Jesus did. It's not what you did. You're saved by grace. And then he spends some time in chapter 2 talking about the fact, oh, and this Jesus saved by grace thing is not only reconciling you to God, it's reconciling you with each other. It's, making, it's restoring relationships that were broken on a human level, in families, in kingdoms, and between Jews and Gentiles. And now in this third section, he's talking about uniting Jews and Gentiles into one family. And so let's pick it up, chapter 2, verse 19. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. You Gentiles are no longer shut out of God's family. You're citizens. You belong. You're members of God's oikos. O-I-K-O-S. Say that word with me. Oikos. Oikos. An oikos in the first century world was extended family, household. It included the dad, the mom, kids, servants, yes, slaves. Sometimes it included weird relatives, <laughs> and even clients of the household. All were part of oikos. And so in the New Testament, whenever Paul is talking about husbands and wives, parents and kids, masters and slaves, he's talking about oikos, household, family. In an oikos, everyone is irreplaceable. 
in an oikos, everyone has a role, everyone has a niche, and everyone has a place of service. Oikos. Verse 20. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Another metaphor. It's not just a household. It's not just family. The church is a house. It's a house like a dwelling, and God dwells in us, in the church, in oikos. He's actually present in a special way. And the foundation, the apostles' teaching, that's the gospel. That good news that God has reconciled people to himself through Jesus Christ and he's reconciling people who used to be estranged from one another. Well, let's keep going. Verse 21. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. That carefully joined together, think of the book of Acts where it's talking about, and they were all together and they kept position, possessions as in common. And some of the things that, that are used to describe the church in its early days, they were meeting together in, ho in houses, and no one had any want. They were meeting each other's needs. They were closely knit, carefully joined together. And then verse 22, Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. That was amazing news for any Gentile readers who kind of thought for the longest time, I'm just on the outs with God and that's how it's going to be. His special people are the Jews and that's, you know, I'm not one of those, never will be. And what? You mean I get to be included too? Really? Yes. And it's not anything you do. It's what Jesus did. What? This is awesome. I get a family? Yeah, you get a family. In fact, it was so palpable that in the first century, many Romans wrongly assumed that Christians were incestuous. You want to know why? Husbands and wives would refer to each other as brother and sister. And the Romans, being the savvy people they are, were like, ew! They took it literally. <laughs> okay? Oikos, family. It's the most prominent metaphor for church in the New Testament. And that's what I want for this church, for any church that bears the name of Jesus. That at some level in the church, regardless of size, regardless of where it's located, that it's family. And that that's the flavor that flavors the church. Here's my temptation as a pastor. And I'm just going to be honest in a way that I, that I sometimes am not. If you actually love and care for people in the church, from time to time, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. They're going to let you down. Sometimes they're, they're not, and it's not malicious, they're going to do things like they'll up and go someplace else and not even tell you. I mean, and you'll have spent the night with them in the hospital and done all these other things. And it hurts. Wait, aren't, aren't we family? Shouldn't you, you know... It's okay to go, but could you tell me? You know, and so what some of my pastor friends do, what some of my pastor colleagues do, is that they just they build a wall around their heart. And they make a decision, you know what? I'm not going to let any church people ever hurt me again. I will provide excellent care for them, but I will not care about them. Hear the difference? 
I will provide excellent care for them, but I will not care about them. So here's my promise. If I get to the point where I decide to wall off my heart, I, Max Vanderpool, will quit. I will quit. I will quit pastoring. I will walk away. And I know that in saying that promise, what I am going to face, I will be hurt. It's going to happen. But I'd rather hurt and care than wall off my heart. This is hard stuff. In the time that I was at Church of the Savior, we ordained seven people into pastoral ministry. Of the seven, I am the only one still in pastoral ministry. And that wasn't that long ago. It's not like it was in the Nixon era. <laughs> that I would understand, right? Here's your temptation. Your temptation as a family member, as a church member, is to make decisions based on what you like or you prefer or what you want or what you need. What other group of people in America make decisions based on what they like, prefer, or want? Children, right? <laughs> and so the temptation you face is to spend the lion's share of your Christian walk as a spiritual child. Don't live that way. Do what Jesus tells you to do. He'll speak. He still speaks. He speaks to you. He speaks through the word. And there are times when you move and do things and, and you're in one church or you're in another. You obey Jesus. It's okay to obey Jesus. He still speaks and he'll speak to you and he'll speak to the people who have your best interests at heart through your oikos. He'll speak through them too. He does. He still speaks. The second thing to, for, for your end is put in the time and effort and commitment to make it family. And here's what I would suggest to you. Sunday mornings in any church, the way we do church in America, this isn't family. Seriously, in your extended family, if every time you got together as a family, you sat in rows and dad gave a speech, <laughs> at some point you would be saying things like, you know, my family just doesn't even understand me. They don't know who I am and I just don't feel connected and I'm really starting to resent dad. <laughs> you would say that, right? The Hubers and Charlotte Lacey a while back started this thing called the Oikos Fellowship Meal. Part of the reason is a chance to gather around the table and just be you and talk and hang out. Part of being a family is just showing up regularly. And I want to encourage you, it's in the places other than when we sit in rows and somebody talks at you. All right? The most important thing for us in the church is that we've got to redefine success. Oh my goodness, we've got to redefine success as a church in America. Success is not about size. It's not about numbers. If it really is a family, success is when we can say of somebody, hey, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the way that you're walking toward Jesus. I'm proud of the way that you're letting Jesus lead and you're following. I'm proud of you because you know what? You remind me of Jesus. That's success. Jenny and I, along the way, we've made family in all the various churches we were at. Sometimes it was in a class when we were Baptists. That's how they did it. So we were in classes. There was a time when uh, we were in a church and it was all old people. And it was us and three other couples that we had nothing in common with. But the four couples were the only people in the church under the age of 40. So every Friday night we got together and played games and talked and shared life. We, we did that thing that pastors like to do. We did life together. We boo-hooed through Dave having his dental school closed down at Loyola and he had to go someplace else. I mean, it was a lot of stuff that year. At, at Church of the Savior, Jenny and I were part of a small group that just never seemed to end. It never ended. 
small group experts say, you shouldn't have your small group last more than two or three years. You know, it gets stale after that. And all the gurus say that, right? And so our small group went on forever. It went on for like five years. You know why? The second year when we were getting ready to maybe wrap things up and our study was done, one of the people in our small group, her husband was kind of cheating on her and there were some issues and it was like they, were, and they ended up in divorce. And some of us went to church leadership and we said, what do we do? And church leaders said, what do you mean, what do you do? You're her family. You stay together. We're like, okay, yes, sir. You know, <laughs> so we met for another year. And then about a year, year and a quarter, we were starting to wrap things up again. And another couple in the, in the, in the small group, they had an eight-month-old baby. And the eight-month-old baby went in for a simple procedure and died on the operating table. Accident. It was an oops moment in the hospital, and he died. And again, we were like, we went to church, some of us went to church leadership. What do we do? And they're like, your family, do what families do. From that small group, this was eons ago, literally when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Okay? Four years ago, somebody from that small group, his wife got cancer. And guess who he called for his venting buddy? Me. We hadn't talked in probably close to, what, seven years or more? They moved to another town. But anytime he wanted to just yell at God or vent for all the stuff that his wife was going through, called me. And I didn't mind any phone call. Want to know why? Family. That's what families do. Americans do not need dynamic worship, stellar worship, dynamic preaching. They need a family of faith. They need an oikos. That's the culturally relevant thing for today. Americans are lonely. They are. They're lonely. In Matthew 12, 49, uh, some people come to Jesus. He's teaching, and they say, hey, Jesus, Jesus, hey, your mom is here. Your brothers are here. Hey, hey, they're, they're, they're over there at the edge of the crowd. And Jesus goes, really? And then he addresses the crowd, and he says, hey, you want to know something? You want to know who my mom is and my brothers are and my sisters are? Anybody who does the will of my father, that's my family. When Jesus left the earth after the resurrection, he didn't leave behind a building. He didn't leave behind a large organization. He didn't leave behind crowds or fans. He left behind a little community, an oikos, that since that time has turned the world upside down through the power of his spirit. Church, gang, is a family, not a business. I want us to own this in a powerful way. Pray with me, will you? God, we need grace because we don't get everything perfect. I don't get everything perfect. And I acknowledge once again, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. We need you. But we also need each other. So I pray that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, that the people in this community, if they would say anything, well, that generation's is a liberal place. Well, that generation's is too contemporary. Well, that generation's is, you know, they don't have enough old people. Or that generation's, that of all the things that are said of us, they will at least say this, man, they loved each other. That's family. And I pray these things in Jesus' sweet name. Amen.